If you will, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. That's where we'll be as we pick up where we left off last time. The message titled today is Brought Together as One, and we're in Ephesians 2, verses 11 to 18. A really important passage that sets up where we're heading. We're going to be in chapter 3 before you know it, where Paul begins to speak about the church as the manifold wisdom of God. That's what he calls the church. We're here on the earth to put God's wisdom on display, and we've been in chapter 2 understanding the grace of God. You all know and have understood now, if you've been with us, how God takes individuals from being formerly lost, dead in sin, completely without hope, and through Christ brings them into a state of new life. No longer the walking dead, but now you're alive in Christ. Your life changes as an individual. We know that and understood it from the grace of God. And now Paul shifts from just individuals who are being transformed by the grace of God to a group of people. So you move from individual salvation to the corporate picture of what that does. This is really the start of the church or what Paul is going to explain as the church. It's a a picture of what the day of Pentecost accomplished or led to. People from every nation, tribe, and tongue who have a lot of differences, different personalities, different skin color, different preferences, different opinions, all somehow being brought together as one, and they're not fighting, they're not killing each other, they're not trying to get ahead, and they're not being cutthroat and competitive, they're actually worshiping together. They're accomplishing something amazing. Paul takes the idea of life transformation and now explains how that impacts the church as a body. And so we're going to see that today. I'm really excited. I hope that a text like this fosters our unity and growth in the right way as a church. And so if you will, go ahead and stand. Let's read together Ephesians 2, verses 11 to 18, as we always do, giving reverence to God's Word for when we read God's Word, He is speaking to us. Paul says, Therefore, Remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ. You were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in His flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in Himself He might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace." And he might reconcile them both into one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. That is God's word to us. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Father, in our world today, it's not lost on You that there is division everywhere. In the church, there is also division. In our relationships, there can be division. And we need Your help. There's no way that the church can be healthy 
or that it can grow up in maturity without unity. There's also a tendency in our hearts, and we confess this before you now, uh, to create class systems within the church, you know, the, the mature superstars, the haves, and then uh, the sort of fledgling bunch that are the have-nots. It's so difficult for us in our humanity and our pride to refrain from looking down on others who maybe aren't where we are spiritually. Or if we're a person struggling, we feel like we just, we're never going to get there. Would you please help us today through the teaching of your word and going through this text to see that we all have access to you as our Father. We are all one in Christ, that we're growing in Christ. We're brought together as the church under Christ. Holy Spirit, help me please to be a faithful servant to my brothers and sisters. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see that all unity and all reconciliation and everything that we are is only found through Christ. Thank you for where you have taken us from and who you have called us to be today. In Jesus' name, we pray and ask all of that. Amen. In the timeline of history or the context surrounding our passage, you have some issues that need to be understood. Jews and Gentiles hated each other. They were enemies. And the reason for their hatred was really their ethnicity, their culture. The Jews viewed themselves as God's people. They were the top of the food chain spiritually. That's the way they thought of themselves because they were, in the Old Testament, God's people, His special, chosen, favored people. And they looked down on everybody who wasn't like them. And so you might look around the news cycle today and see a plethora of racial tension and culture wars, right? We see a lot of that going on and think, man, it, it, this is crazy and this is worse than anything's ever been and this is something entirely new. It's actually not. Because of humanity and sin and cultural issues and elitist tendencies within the heart of men and women for millennia, division is normal, unfortunately. And it can happen in the church as well. William Barclay commentates on the way that Jews thought about Gentiles. Listen to the hatred they had for one another. Jews believed the Gentiles were little more than humans created to fuel the fires of hell. Imagine that. Imagine viewing people as little more than the devil's kindling. There's an old motto in Judaism. It went like this. The best of serpents crush. The best of Gentiles, kill. They had created some man-made rules as well. For example, if you were a Jew, you couldn't help a Gentile woman give birth to her baby because all you were doing was helping her birth another little pagan that was going to ruin your world. That's the way they thought about people. You couldn't go into a Gentile house if you were a Jew or you'd be considered unclean. You see this in the book of Acts when Peter goes and is ministering to Cornelius who is having this incredible experience with the Holy Spirit and he begins to speak in tongues like they did at Pentecost and the Holy Spirit falls upon him and he's baptized in that moment into the body of Christ and the Jews are freaking out. 
because Peter was hanging out with a Gentile. They're unclean. They eat the weird stuff that we don't. That's the way the Jews felt. And they begin to challenge Peter. And then Peter goes and explains, hey, in paraphrase, in 2022 lingo, y'all need to calm down. Jesus is saving the Gentiles too. The same Holy Spirit that came down upon us at Pentecost is the same Holy Spirit that is now falling on the Gentiles when they repent and believe, he says. And they suddenly have this epiphany moment in which God is doing something new. The Gentiles aren't a people to be hated. They're a part of the body of Christ now. And the Jews were rubbed the wrong way in that moment because they were so used to the separation from Gentiles. But hey, the Gentiles aren't off the hook either. And if you and I are here and you're not Jewish, then you are also a Gentile. A Gentile, by definition, in their context, was a non-Jew. Here are how Gentiles, or like the Greeks, thought of other people. And if you've got some Greek background like I do, you know how we can be. You think we invented everything. If you watch certain movies... You know, we think, I think we think we invented Windex, too, and everything else under the sun. The Greeks, Livy writes, wage a truceless war against people of other races and against barbarians. Cicero writes this, as the Greeks say, all men are divided into two classes, Greeks and then barbarians. Basically, everyone who is not us just a bunch of cavemen, Neanderthals, lesser human beings. Church, when it came to division, racism, ethnic prejudice, all of that type of aggressive behavior and that aggressive worldview, they had their work cut out for them, just like we do today. People were being divided over all of these different issues. You would think unity is impossible with these two groups in particular. But in Christ, how many understand and are thankful that unity can be found? That we go from alienation to reconciliation. That what man views as impossible is possible. Not through theories. Not through mere protest. Not through giving up your rights or doing whatever you're told to do, but through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Only Jesus has the power to take people who would otherwise hate each other and put them in the same family together. That's what our text is going to show us today. We're going to see two truths. Number one, that without Christ there is alienation, and that in Christ there is reconciliation. And you might add, only in Christ there is reconciliation. This is not just the who you were before as a sinner and now who you are in Christ. This is who we all were as Gentiles before and now who we are together as a body in Christ. And it sets the stage for chapter 3 in our great understanding of the church. Let's look at number one together. Without Christ, there's alienation. Paul to the Gentiles now at Ephesus says, therefore, remember that you formerly, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, 
excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. You had no hope, and you were without God in the world. What does all this mean? Let's just break it down together. First, when he says, therefore, remember. Whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, you just ask, what is it there for? It means, based on everything I just said to you. So whenever you see a therefore, you just need to look back, typically, several verses, maybe a chapter, maybe a book, if it's at the end of a letter. But overall, what he's doing is pointing back to chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and them understanding the grace of God. Remember in the beginning of chapter 2, he says, remember basically that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Well, that was a look back on who you were, and now you're going to look at the grace of God. And what's going to result? You're going to say, oh, praise God. Thank you, Lord, that I was once lost and dead, and now I'm found. Well, he says, therefore, remember that you as a people, Gentiles, you were cut off from being God's people. You weren't Israel, which they were the chosen people in the Old Testament. But he goes even further when he says, those of you Gentiles in the flesh, meaning physically, your ethnicity, you're called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision. The Jews had created a class system. In the law, God said in the Old Testament that the Jews, the people of Israel, were to be circumcised. That was different than all other cultures. No no other culture practiced that. The Jews were to do that, and that would be a, a physical identification that that was one of God's people, a Hebrew, an Israelite. And there were other marks as well. For example, you know, people will take passages out of context in the Old Testament and say, it's a sin to get a tattoo. Why? Well, because in the Old Testament, God said, don't mark your body. Well, back then, God said, don't mark your body because pagan cultures would mark themselves as a showcase of their paganism. And God said, no marking your bodies, Hebrews, because I want everyone to know, even just from looking at you, that you are my people. He had laws for the kind of colors they could wear if they were men and women, the kind of linens they could wear. So some people will say today, well, you can't do this and you can't do that. I would always encourage those people who say it's a sin to get a tattoo to also tell people that it's a sin to wear certain types of corduroy and certain clothing because there were laws against that too. But that's not what the Old Testament law was for. It was to make a people look and act different because God wanted people to say to these Hebrews, why are you this way? What is different? And then they would point to who? Yahweh, the living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not Dagon like the false god of the Philistines, not other gods that were lifeless and dead or angry, but this is just like when Elijah and Elisha are walking the earth. And you remember the prophets of Baal, they're drunk and they're dancing themselves into a stupor all the time and they're calling down fire. And then what happens when Elijah calls down fire from the true God, the living God? It consumes the altar. Everything that God was doing, everything that He had designed, everything He had called His people to do was to showcase the difference between Him and every other God, and His people, and every other people. That was the purpose. Circumcision was part of that. Well, the Jews took it to a whole new level of prejudice, and they would refer to Gentiles as the uncircumcised. David calls Goliath this. You remember in the Old Testament story, maybe you've never heard of it before, but David and Goliath But even if you're not a believer, maybe you've never been in church before, Malcolm Gladwell even has a book, you know, David and Goliath. And so David and Goliath is sort of this general story that people know that there's a giant and there's this guy and he kills him with a sling. Well, what you may not remember or may not have heard before is what David calls Goliath. 
He says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? It's a pejorative. Like in a fight. Who does this guy think he is? That's how David talked. The label uncircumcised was a pejorative. Paul says, remember, you were called that. And at that time, you were separate from Christ. You weren't a part of Israel. And you're strangers to the covenant of promise. What does he mean by that? Well, think of all the different covenants in the Old Testament. God makes a covenant with Abraham. God makes a covenant with David that his throne would be established forever. That's why we would say that when Christ returns and he's going to seat himself on the throne of David. Why? Well, because he made that covenant with David. Even though Solomon had way too many wives and one was enough, he thought 700 would be fun plus 300 concubines. Well, he blows the thing to smithereens and his sons divide the kingdom. He disobeys God. What does God still do? He keeps his covenant with David, even though Solomon didn't follow everything God had said. Why? Because God's a covenant God. He calls a people unto Himself. He should have burned Israel with fire long before Sodom and Gomorrah or anyone else experienced that. Why? Israel was so disobedient. They they were getting manna from heaven. God showing up. He parts the Red Sea. Molecular structures change. Miracles beyond miracles. And do you remember what they did? They complained the second He doesn't do the next thing in their timeline. They kept forgetting God. Anybody have kids? They could be a little bit like that. Ungrateful. You take them to the zoo or you put food in their bellies or you take good care of them and and all you ask of them is that they follow some rules and, and love their brother and sister. And the toy that they didn't even pay for, they're selfish with as though they bought it. This is Israel with God. He had every right to destroy them. He didn't. Why? He made a covenant with them that they would be His people. The Gentiles had no access to that. They had no ability to say we are God's people. In Exodus 6-7, we see God sovereignly choosing Israel. I'll read this to you. He says, I will take you to me for a people, and I will be to you a God. When Israel is chosen, it's not because Israel is awesome or because they have some particular quality. It's that God in His sovereignty chooses Israel in the Old Testament to call this people His own for His own glory and His own purposes. And throughout all the eras of rebellion, the prophetic ministries of Isaiah, Obadiah, Joel, and Amos into the Babylonian exile when the kingdom is sieged and this divided kingdom is experiencing judgment. When Ezekiel and Daniel prophesy concerning Israel, God always keeps His promises to Israel, His covenant with them. Even though they were rebellious, even though they worshipped other gods, He still said, they are My people and I will be their God. But God also in His sovereign plan, ordains a time in which the new covenant of promise will come, and it is through His Son, Christ. And in that time, it will not be just Jews who are brought in and have access to God, but it will also be the Gentiles. The prophets don't fully understand this. The people of Israel don't fully understand this. They, they didn't have an idea of the church. They weren't like, hey, there's going to be this thing, and it's going to be called the church. 
and we're all going to be a part of it. We're going to sing together, and we're all going to be brought together in, the, in Jesus. They knew there's a Messiah coming, but they thought the Messiah was just going to establish the kingdom right then and there, and they were going to be it. Israel thought they were the top of the pyramid. God comes along, and He grafts in a people who were not His people because of their ethnicity, but they would become His people simply by faith in His Son. Prior to that, the Gentiles were alienated. Without Christ, there is total alienation. And the Jews had taken that separation to levels that God had never intended, and then Christ comes in and tears down the dividing wall, and that's what we're going to understand here. He abolishes that. He does away with that. But yes, God had blessed Israel. And Amos 3.2 says, You, only you, have I chosen among all the families of the earth. But why? They were blessed to be a blessing. That's why Israel was given God's choice and given God's blessing. They missed it. And so, yes, the Gentiles were alienated because they were separated from God, but they were also still alienated because the Jews weren't doing their job. I want to help you understand this, because we do this a little bit as the church today. We're on the earth to point people to our God. In the same way, Israel was separate and different from the world, like the church is called to be now, in order to point people to their God. But they kept taking the blessing and privilege of being God's people and shutting the world out. They were being selfish with their privilege, like trust fund babies who squander their inheritance, or even those who do it well, but then they ungratefully forget that everything they have is from God and for God. They take the kindness of God and they view it through an attitude of pride. This is what Israel was doing. A great example was Jonah, of course, who didn't want to share God or His mercy with others. A great example in the New Testament is the Pharisees. Do you remember the way they were with people if you've studied the Gospels? They were always being rude and nasty and elitist with sinners, Gentiles, Romans, tax collectors, people who weren't like them. And who did Jesus target all the time? Sinners. Why? He said, people who are well don't need a physician. People who are sick do. The Son of Man hasn't come to, to find those that are already found, but to seek and save that which was lost. Israel didn't get it. That it wasn't about them. It was about God. And so, yes, again, the Gentiles were alienated because God, in His sovereign plan, had not brought them in yet through Christ. But also, you know in the Old Testament, if you've read it, that Rahab was brought in. You have Ruth, who's a Moabite. She's not a Jew. You have Nineveh, who God said, Jonah, go tell them. I'll save them. I'll redeem them. I'll, I'll forgive them. Israel was meant to be a beacon to the world around them. And so too the church is. And when they did not do their job, in a sense, the Gentiles were still alienated. And not just alienated, they were treated with prejudice. And so they were, as most commentators say, Christless. They had no Messiah. 
They were stateless. They, they were outside the commonwealth of Israel. They were not citizens in God's kingdom. They were friendless. Abraham is called God's friend in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 7. That relationship extended to his descendants of promise. That's not what the Gentiles had. They were godless. All their gods were dead, and they were finicky, and they were angry, and they never showed up to do the job that they thought they would. They were futile in their thinking. They were godless, and they were hopeless. They had no future Messiah. They had no coming kingdom. They had nothing to look forward to. That's why many write about the melancholy that was prevalent in those days for a lot of the Roman culture, a lot of the Greeks and Gentiles, is because there was nothing more than just annihilationism to look forward to. On the other side of death was nothing, just blackness. You're just going to go off into some darkness, or you're not even there. There's nothing. There's no hope. So they were hopeless. This is the best life you'll ever live. Serve your pagan gods eat, drink, be merry, live it up. It'll be your best life now. That was all without Christ. Alienation from Him. Alienation because of Israel as well. But in Christ, number two, let's look at reconciliation. What happened to bring these people who were separate into being a part of Christ? Verse 13 and 14 says, but now in Christ, you who were formerly far off. You've been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace. And He made both groups, that's Jews and Gentiles, into one, and He broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. What does that mean? Well, it's not a, a, some random metaphor or just a, a poetic statement. There was a literal division between Jews and everyone else, including women at the temple. This is a reference to that. The Old Testament temple had a structure. The way God designed it was not to keep everybody out or, or really far away like they could never access Him, but it was a structure and an order. The Holy of Holies, which of course only the priesthood could enter. You had the inner court, the outer court. You had different courts that were named things. You had the court of women. Women could get that far. You had the court of Gentiles as well. God originally instituted or designed the court of Gentiles to be a place where Gentiles could still come. And what were the Jews supposed to do? Proselytize them. They were supposed to tell them about their God. Perhaps the Gentiles would say, what is it that takes place in the Holy of Holies? What is this place? What is happening? And the Jews would use that as an opportunity to point them to their living God. But instead, they created, again, barriers of class, class systems. And instead of using those areas as opportunities to tell people about God, they created division and even relished in the division. They created the haves and the have-nots. And through Christ, all that is broken down and torn apart. Maybe you're thinking of this already, but we, we do this in the church today. We are a structure. We're a people. And people come in, and yes, the church is not for unbelievers. It is for who? It's for believers. Why? The church, ecclesia, is the called out ones, the separated ones. That's biblical. That's theological. We don't do church here for unbelievers. Otherwise, we would sing Taylor Swift and Katy Perry and whoever else. We wouldn't sing to God. We would just sing pagan music or whatever. The church is for believers. Unbelievers, though, come in. 
We want that. We want to invite them. We want to invite friends and neighbors. We want people to come and learn about God. And what happens when they enter into our midst? Do they hear the latest radio hits? Do I talk about five ways to be a better whatever? No. What are they supposed to come into contact with? A people worshiping God, and they say, wow, this is different. Everything he talked about is different. This is about God. This is about me being changed by God. It's really not about just some random thing. I mean, this is different. What is all this? And people are supposed to be a little blown away, maybe even a little put off. We're kind of weird because we're separate from the world. And then they start going, I want that. This looks different. Something here is different. And that's the Spirit of God working in the heart of a person. That's how the church is supposed to be. Israel was supposed to be the same kind of beacon in their day, but they kept making the narrow way even more narrow than it was. The church does the same thing all the time. You don't dress like us, can't come in. You don't look like us, can't come in. You don't talk like we do, can't come in. I don't really always understand what's going on. Well, sink or swim. You're either saved or you're not. God is sovereign. He's what? He's sovereign. I don't, what, can I get a book or something for help? Could, do you have a dictionary? Do you have anything? I just want to know what you're talking about. I, I think I want what's here. And then what God does, because He's really good, and He's really sovereign, and He's really loving, and He's really merciful, He goes, okay, all right, like if it's shepherd's house. Cool, you guys want to play the game like the Jews did in the Old Testament, and how they sectioned everything off in the temple and acted like no one was good enough but them? Let me do this. I'm going to do what I'm going to do with my people. I'm just going to move them over to another church that hasn't made the way more narrow than even I did. Israel had messed the whole thing up. And division in the church is often rooted in people adding to what God has already given. Christ came and broke down the dividing wall. We need to be so careful with this. There are good barriers, obviously. Good barriers to, to what? Church leadership, right? You can't just be a church leader. We want good ones so that someone has to, doesn't have to do a podcast on me one day, right? Or, or have to, you guys have to vote me out because I'm a tyrant. Or we have deacons and elders who are just in their spots because of some other reason. I mean, this is, this is why right now all over the news and all over the church, you just story after story, well, because church leaders are getting in their position the wrong way. And also, let's use specific examples here. You're not going to teach in shepherd's kids, or even be on the shepherd's kids team, unless you are a church member, and you are background checked, and then you meet with a pastor or one of our team members, and then you're trained, because you ain't going to get our kids without a process. That's good. That's not creating spiritual class systems. That's just saying, no, you're not getting our kids to, you're not going to teach our kids. You're going to see the kids unless you go through these systems. Why? Because we ain't playing with the next generation because Jesus said, if you cause one of the little ones to stumble, go ahead and just tie a big old stone around yourself and jump into the ocean. It's over. Don't mess with my little ones. Jesus loves children. He cares for them and shows special attention to them. That's a good barrier. There's a lot of good barriers. Jesus makes it clear 
all over the Gospels of what it takes to be a real disciple, right? Good barrier. He tells the rich young ruler, oh, awesome, you keep all the rules, great. Now sell everything, give it to the poor, and come follow me. That's a barrier. Why? Because he loved money so much, this guy did. So Jesus puts a barrier in front of him. Do you love me most? Obviously, that's a barrier. A barrier would be faith. You have to have faith in Christ. You can't just come in and go, hey, I believe in whatever. I just want to be a part of this church. And we're like, awesome, we just want to love you. Well, love is truth, and truth is love, right? So we need to tell people the truth. James 3.1, another good barrier. Let not many of you become teachers, lest you incur a stricter judgment. You don't play around with who teaches and who's in leadership. Why? Well, because God is going to judge that person and that role. Why? Because He loves His church. But there are barriers people add. They take it to a whole new level. Like when we treat the church like our little holy huddle, and nobody can get in but us, and nobody can be a part of it but us. And you know what is a great example of this? In Matthew chapter 20, you have the parable of the vineyard workers. A a, a man with a vineyard, he hires a group of workers, and he, he offers to pay them a wage for the day. It's a set wage. And then along the, the day there, there are more people that come, and he offers to pay them a wage. He gives them the same wage. And at the end of the day, everybody comes together, and he pays them all. And the people who are there all day are angry that the owner of the vineyard has the audacity to pay the people who only worked later in the day the same wage. There's a lesson there. Nobody deserved it. It was the owner of the vineyard who decided to pay. The workers who came in the early part of the day, they had agreed to that wage. We do this in the church all the time. People get saved, they grow, they mature. Somebody comes that was just like them, and they look back, well, I can't, I'm really uncomfortable that people like that are, are allowed in this church. Really? I'm glad somebody let you in 10 years ago. Well, I just, I, I, I'm really uncomfortable with kind of the way things just seem a little bit, you know, there's a lot, a lot of people around and they're, they're, they, they want to be in small groups and all this stuff, and we really have a good thing going here. For who? You? The idea here is that in Christ, the barriers are removed. There's no more division based on ethnicity. There's no more haves and have-nots. If you have Christ, it doesn't matter if you're a a day-old Christian, and I've been a Christian for 40 years, we both get to call Him Father. We have the same Lord. We're a part of the same body. We have the same access. And that's why in verses 15 to 17, Paul says, "...by abolishing in his flesh the enmity..." which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. That's all the rules, all the things that Israel did. They had to keep the law. Jesus abolishes in His flesh the enmity, the enemy essentially of unity being that the law. The law was dividing so that in Himself He might make the two into one new man and establish peace. He reconciles them both into one body to God through the cross. It is the cross that brings people together from different walks of life. God removes the barrier, even that the law creates, where we can't keep it. We can't save ourselves. We're alienated. We can't do enough things to remove the division between us and God. So Christ comes in, and not only does He bring peace between us and God through faith, but He brings peace between us and other people. The body of Christ is reconciled both to the Father and with one another. And so we're supposed to be a unified people. 
For through Him, in verse 18, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens. This is to the Gentiles now. You're fellow citizens and saints, and you are of God's household. When he says that in himself he might make the two into one new man, back just a few verses earlier, he means Jesus has taken the two divided groups. And, and he's not, he doesn't have Israel. And then he goes kind of, all right, Gentiles, you can come in. We'll let you in. We got an area for you, though, with signage. Follow it to your little section. It's all removed. And the word that is used here is the Greek word kainos, literally means something new that never existed before, which I believe is clear as the church. You, you didn't get access to God now because you were a part of the Jewish culture. It wasn't like, you know, Israel is, is you know, now the church and then everybody, everybody can come in now. We're going to let them all in and everyone, because this is something completely new. It is the body of Christ in which Jews and Gentiles are brought together is as a new people, a new man, something new as the church. Do you understand what would happen in the church today if we just read verses 18 and 19 and then just lived it and applied it? Do you realize the unity that would happen in the church today? Realize if we started, we'd look at people as, as God's next great miracle of salvation. We'd look at everybody who has a humble heart and is repentant before the Lord and wants to grow as our great assignment to help and to be patient with and to encourage forward. When the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom as Jesus died, that signified whatever barriers are between God and man and even between man and each other, things that you'd say, well, it's impossible. We can never bring people together like that. People would never unify. These people would never get along. All through the grace of God, that is now possible because of Christ. There's no more layers in the temple courts. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. There's no more mediator priests. Jesus is our high priest. There's no more fear and insecurity. We approach the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and grace in our time of need. And so he says, you're no longer strangers and aliens. You're fellow citizens and saints. You're in God's household. So that tells us we're not even merely just strangers, a part of a united kingdom. We're actually family. And some of you know this well. You have more unity and more in common with people that are saved, the body of Christ, your family in Christ, than you might even have with your blood relatives. And this is what Jesus is referring to in Matthew 10 when he says that he'll be the dividing line in verses 34 there through 39. He says, I didn't come to bring peace but a sword. What does he mean by that, that he's trying to cause trouble for all your relationships? No, but some family members are going to believe this about Jesus and others are going to believe this about Jesus. And what you believe will dictate a lot of your relationships. And that's why very often, especially in today's world, you lose friends. And blood relatives don't want much to do with you except during the holidays. Why? Well, because you follow Jesus the way you do. And so you come into the church and, and you shouldn't be treated like this. I don't want you to feel this. And also, you ought to view the church this way. It's not just a bunch of strangers. This is family. And we're going to be together in heaven. So it's an eternal family. Now, I know heaven's going to be big. 
And I know there's a lot of people that will be there, and so you don't have to see everyone all the time. I know some of you are worried about seeing certain people that are believers, but they give you a headache once in a while. But the reality is we ought to view people through the lens of family. Barclay writes this, With its fences running through the races and people of the world, modern progress has made the world a neighborhood. God has given us the task of making it a brotherhood. It's a family. So in the gospel, because of Christ, the church has a message of reconciliation. And in today's world especially, we need to go back to the reality that that message works. It reconciles people. In the gospel is the singular solution to the culture war raging today. Jesus brings us together as one. You could be black, you could be white, you could be Asian, Mexican, you could be Lebanese, Chinese, German, Polish, French, British, Pakistani, Indian, Norwegian, Australian, Russian, and everything in between, and you are my brother and my sister. Why? Because if we have Christ, we're family. That's reconciliation. And the world is searching for unity in all the wrong places, even if it's a noble desire to see people come together. And even if, you know, you say, well, Costi, what about all of the injustices? And what about all the inequalities? And I watched the Netflix documentary on this, and I watched about that, and the distribution of wealth, and we needed this, and we needed that, and all of these things. You know, what about, what about, what about? I have watched all the same documentaries. And I'm with you in the questions of why things happen a certain way. And I understand, and so do so many people, that ethnic prejudice and racism is absolutely sin. But in the end, a Christian goes to bed at the end of the day with their head on the pillow knowing that critical race theory is not the solution. And them redoing our kids' curriculum in the school system is not the solution. And political upheaval is not necessarily the solution. And protests are not the solutions. And different acronyms are not the solution. The gospel remains the single solution to the division of men today. That is what the solution always will be. And the church has to proclaim that message. Why? Well, because Ecclesiastes says that God has set eternity in the hearts of men. So instead of looking at the world and seeing, look at these crazy people trying to do this and that, look at them out there protesting, and doing what the Israelites did and what the people in the New Covenant even still sometimes went back to, their spiritual snobbery, why don't we start viewing those people as searching for reconciliation? They're just looking for it in all the wrong places. Then you bring the gospel into those particular spheres. And you share that Jesus is the ultimate solution. And that's why church in the end, you know, if you ask me or anyone else or people ask you to kind of pull out your toolbox and fix today's issues, I hope and pray we have one tool in the toolbox. When you open it up, it's shaped like a cross and you go to the gospel every single time, time and time again. Let's hit the home stretch and land the plane with three applications. So what should we do as a church? What should this look like in your life and in mine? Number one, If all that is true, and we know it is based on what we've studied in Scripture, we need to be very diligent to preserve our unity. We need to be diligent to preserve our unity. If Jesus has made reconciliation a priority, spiritually, we ought to relationally. And I know people are difficult, and I know not everyone has the best of intentions, but we are diligent people to preserve our unity. 
We don't just fight people. We fight for our unity. We're trying to achieve something. We want to care for souls, not just crush our opponents. And so in the church, you go to people. You work it out. You have lunch. You have coffee. You deal with the hurts. You deal with the offenses. You you deal with the thoughts and the assumptions and the emotions and the schisms and the personality clashes. All of it. You deal with it. Why? Well, because we have the same Lord and we have the same Spirit. And so we ought to, very different than the world, just cut people off. We ought to work it out. And so we we should be diligent to preserve our unity. Number two, we should see the church as a fresh slate or a clean slate for repentant people. The church is a clean slate for the repentant heart. People are going to come in, they're going to be messy. Welcome to ministry. People are going to come in and you're going to want to roll your eyes at times about certain things they say. One that often comes up, you, you'll hear this all the time in circles where there's sound doctrine. You know, someone says, well, I just, I feel like, and like, never mind about your feelings. It's not about your feelings. It's not about how you feel. It's about what you know. And then you, they, they don't even quote the Bible. They, ben Shapiro says, the facts don't care about your feelings. And they get all up in arms over feelings. You can't say, I feel. They're going, I don't know what you're talking about. I just... Okay, well, you need sound doctrine. Okay, what does that even mean? I've never heard that before. I want it. Whatever it is, it sounds good. The church is a fresh slate for people who want to grow and want to learn. They won't always say it like you. They won't always dress like you. They won't always make the decisions you do. And neither did you before. And so in Christ, people get a fresh slate. And there always need to be an open door here for people who are like that. Number three, and finally, reject false and unbiblical methods of reconciliation. There's a lot of very humanistic attempts in today's world to reconcile people. It's a lot like sticking a, a, a piece of chewing gum on the Hoover Dam while it's cracking. You're just kind of putting stuff on there. You're putting Band-Aids on a flesh wound that needs stitches or staples people trying to reconcile people. It doesn't last. You can't fix the problem of sin without the solution for sin. So when Christ changes hearts, that will change the world. And so we need to reject false and unbiblical methods of reconciliation and do so with love and unapologetically. I know some people say, well, there's something helpful about this or there's a lot we can learn from. I'm going to go with the gospel every time because it is sufficient. I'm going to go with Scripture every time, because it's sufficient. Well, that's ignorant and narrow-minded. Well, I'm just going to go with the same playbook and run the same plays that Paul and Peter and everyone else did, and that's going to be just fine. And if I miss it and you got it, God bless you, I'm willing to face the Lord one day and said, I stuck to your word, because you said in Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, and the Word of God will stand forever in the midst of all that. I guess I didn't know that, you know, CRT was going to somehow get in there and be a little extra for us. I didn't know, Lord. I just went with Your Word. I'm good with that, and you ought to be too. There's nowhere that true change should be more obvious than here in the church because we have Christ. Amen?